Today on Adventure Rider Radio, a million motorcycle miles, over a million downloads of this show, and part three of custom fitting your bike to your body size. Pay attention, what you hear today may not save your life, but it may save your special body parts from damage. I'm Jim Martin, this is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us, we got a good one for you. Shall we begin? Shall we begin? Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA, and it comes with a lifetime warranty. The crew at Best Rest are adventure riders themselves, so they know what you want when you're exploring the world. Visit them at www.cyclepump.com. That's www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using this unique strapping system, and it's easy to switch from one bike to another. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. You've got to check out the buckles, the straps, the whole bit. www.greenchiliadv.com. That's www.greenchiliadv.com. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Brian Fields. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Morris. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Greg and W. Crazy. Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tart. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Ross. Jeremy Krieger. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Bonnie Glaze. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. A million motorcycle miles. Now, how far is that in kilometers? Well, the calculation is pretty simple. You take the miles and you times it by 1.6, roughly thereabouts, and what you get is 1.6 million kilometers. Okay, math lesson done. We know how to convert miles to kilometers, and when we did this because we have a lot of countries with the metric system. No matter, a million of anything is a big number. Well, a few weeks back, Adventure Rider Radio passed 1 million direct downloads. Honestly, I have a little trouble getting my head around that because you have to realize that just over two and a half years ago when we started this podcast, we had zero listeners. Well, I listened. Maybe that was it. And I remember getting excited when we saw a thousand downloads total. It was like a big deal to me. And now, like last month, we had over 75,000 downloads alone. That's incredible. Really. I mean, most podcasts never, ever see numbers like this. We're really, truly grateful for how popular this show has become. Anyway, Elizabeth and I just wanted to let you know about it and to let you know how thankful we are to you, the listener, and to the incredible guests we've had on this show. We've been very fortunate to have all these amazing guests come on here and share their stories and information with us. The show is still growing, too, at a steady rate. So in celebration of our one million downloads here at Adventure Rider Radio, we have Vonnie Glaives on today, who has logged over 1 million miles on her motorcycles, and she's officially certified by BMW for doing it.
Okay, I'm Bonnie Glaves. I live north of Terlingua, Texas, in the Big Bend. And what I do is ride. <laughs> wow. Bonnie, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. It's great to be here. You know, I, I shouldn't have expected any other answer with what it is you do other than <laughs> you ride for someone who has ridden as many miles as you. Ah, that That's something that, you know, when I began riding, I was a young mom back in the 70s. And I was terrified because it's a huge responsibility to be riding a motorcycle when you've been raised from a small child to know how dangerous they are. So I had to work really hard to be safe. Are motorcycles dangerous? That's what my mom told me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The reality is that I've ridden, actually even my mom and dad got, so they weren't nearly as worried about me. But by the time I got to a million miles and had not had an accident, they were pretty much believing maybe they weren't as dangerous as everybody had told them. Well, you said it. You have ridden over a million miles and I, I think that's in in something like 24 years is that what it is um yes I think so yes I can't remember the exact number of years but I guess like from 77 to 2017 I'm sorry to 2011 is when we met the uh, million mile goal so what is that average per year how many per year Gosh, I'm not sure. I'll tell you this. The first um, seven years that I rode, I rode 11,000 miles total. And then by the time I was closing in on a million, there was a year that I rode 83,000 miles in one year. Well, you've been certified by BMW as one of only two women that have ridden a million miles on your motorcycle. Mm -hmm. That is true. So it sounds like, looking at your story, that the thing that really got you into going much further distances was going out and riding on your own. Can you talk about the first time that you headed off on your own adventure? The first overnight adventure. I'll talk about that because that really uh, made a major difference in my riding and my my approach to riding. I was going to head off to a rally called the Lunatic Fringe in Alberta, Canada, and I was really excited to ride with uh, a girlfriend and then another couple. And as the time got closer, first of all, my girlfriend couldn't go for various reasons, and then the couple couldn't go. And I was so disappointed. So I finally thought, well, fine, I will do this. So um, it was 1,700 miles to the rally. We lived in Iowa, and I got to somewhere in North Dakota. You know, there was a sign on the on the uh, highway that said campground. And finally, after 600 miles, I, I stopped, set up my tent, went inside and started studying the Rand McNally map. And that was like before then, I always read books when I was traveling. Starting then, I started reading maps. I had a Rand McNally Atlas and just contemplating all the different ways to go. Before then, Paul had always been the navigator, so I had always been the planner and getting us ready and on the road. But when we were on the road, Paul figured out where to go. Now that was my job to get to um, just outside of Calgary, Alberta. And 
it was just the most fantastic experience. Everything about it was just wonderful. Now, it's notable that this is, um, you're not carrying a cell phone or, or a smartphone and a GPS no. in your pocket. <laughs> no, I had paper maps. That was it. Well, the cell phone in particular, because I think that's a real lifeline for people heading out. And it, and it tends to give you, well, not only confidence, it actually gives you the connectability to be able well, to, yes. to get a hold of somebody, right? I mean, if you have any sort of yeah. problem, you just grab your cell phone. And in most areas, a lot of areas, you can just call for help. But, but back then, going out on your own was really going out on your own. It really was. But what I really found, and I found this my whole life, all my traveling, there are the most incredible, wonderful people in the world. Um my mother was so worried, and I tell people that, you know, she watched the news in Kansas City every night, and every night there was somebody who'd gotten robbed or killed or whatever, and and they always had a microphone in the face of the survivors and saying, what happened, and how did you feel about that? And I went out on the road, and I found nothing but really great people every, every place. Did you realize at that point that people were riding long distances? No. Um, I just knew they went places to get places, you know, like my husband got interested in riding long distances. He would go off and ride a thousand miles and end up at home. And I thought if I'm going to ride a thousand miles, I want to be at my sister's or I want to be some other place. I don't want to just, I, you know, I see it as a way to get somewhere, but there are people who ride just to ride. And now I am one, you know, I kind of understand that. At the point when you were heading off on this trip, was riding the motorcycle something that you you just loved to do at that point? I mean, were you already sold on it, you know, as, as a um, as a thing you're you're fine doing by yourself? Definitely, it was it, that trip is what turned it into something I could do by myself. Before then, I loved riding. I you know I just really did. But you know, the million miles was something that. No one would have expected of me if they were watching me as that young mom, you know, all worried about being safe. Because my first hundred miles, honestly, I didn't leave the farm yard. I went around the apple orchard. I went around the house. I set up cones. I practiced all over. And I didn't want to go on the gravel road because, you know, that's kind of a scary thing. It was a mile and a half of gravel before I got to the pavement. And that was even more terrifying because, you know, there's traffic at least in my yard, I had no traffic. And on the gravel road, I had very little traffic. But the paved road really scared me. So, you know, it, it took me a long time to feel like I was going to venture out in the world with my kid. So after the trip to Alberta, Canada, things changed for you. You decided that um, you were, com I mean, really what you were doing there is you were, you were pushing your comfort zone, which we talk a lot about exactly. on this show. You know, and mm -hmm. once you've pushed it, it's a, I've heard it described as a circle and you're the nucleus in the circle. And if you draw a circle around, that's the maximum of your comfort zone. Once you go to that edge and sort of break beyond it, your circle now gets bigger. And, and that's what happened to you. Mm -hmm, it did. Um, I, that, that year, actually, 1991, I won the mileage contest, which is a six-month contest for BMW motorcycle owners, and I really hadn't planned it. You know, I just rode my motorcycle everywhere. After that, I rode to work all the time. I, I mean, I just didn't take a car unless there was ice or snow, and so I was just riding everywhere, but I won the contest without trying, and people laughed at me for that because... They couldn't imagine that I hadn't just 
gone out and ridden just to ride miles, but I didn't. I was going places. But there was the year uh, 1999, so jump ahead a bit. I decided that I would really like to see how many miles I could ride in six months if I just put my mind to it, and that's all I did. And so I asked Paul about that, and he said, yeah, he'd be willing to do them, the services and the changing the tires and whatever it took to, to do that. And my mom and dad were doing very well health-wise. My kids were in college, and I just finished a master's degree. So, you know, I could really devote myself to doing that. And so I just made this incredible plan. And at the end of that six months, I'd ridden 73,660 miles. What sort of plan? Is it just that you're just riding off in different directions? Here's the deal. I am like, when I get to doing something, I want to do it the very best, you know? So if I didn't have a plan, I would have ridden a lot of miles the first day and a lot of miles the second day and a lot of miles the first month. And then I would have said, this is enough. So I instead decided that any day I was teaching, I would be riding 100 miles. I was already riding 25 miles to get to work, to my school, one way. So that was 50. I was already halfway there just because that's what I already do. So I would just take the long way home and 100 miles any day I taught. And then on Friday after school, Paul and I always were headed off to rallies somewhere. So... Uh, I would ride 400 miles Friday after school, so starting about three, leaving till whatever. And if the rally was closer, I'd just ride past it and come back so that I had 400 miles. And then Saturday and Sunday were each 500-mile days. And then as a teacher, I had 72 days in the summer that I didn't have school. And I averaged over 500 miles a day for those 72 days. Wow. And what did you do? What was your destination? <laughs> okay. Tell well, me you rallies. didn't leave from home and take a big roundabout and come back home every day. Well, no. Um, on the 100-mile days, that wasn't that much, you know. But in the summertime, when I was doing my 500-mile days, I decided that, you know, the Four Corners ride would be an incredible thing to do. But I didn't want to just do that. I wanted to hit the four corners of the U.S., but I wanted to drop off for this rally here. And sometimes I'd have to come back to Kansas and get Paul to change tires and change bikes. I rode a K75, and when its tires needed replacing, I'd ride back to Kansas. And Paul would do a service on that bike. I'd pick up my R11 RS and ride it for a couple weeks, and then I would come back. So... I I went to the four corners of the U.S. and went to rallies all along the way. And if you're riding a thousand miles a day, you really probably want to stick to interstates. But if you are riding 500 miles a day, you can go any back road. You can go any way you want. You don't have to drive into a storm. You can turn around and go back the other way. Um, You know, I, I could improvise as I went and then at night read my Rand McNally to see where to go the next day. It was just a most magical time. And there wasn't a, I can't remember a day where I said, oh, I'm tired of doing this. I was so happy and privileged to be able to ride as much as I wanted for six months like that. Why BMW? Oh, yes. So when Paul was a teacher, 
Paul was actually a city planner, but he taught at the university about city planning as one course. He had a student in his class who was graduating, and his parents did not like that he rode a motorcycle. So they told him if he would sell his motorcycle, they would buy him a fancy sports car. And he said, Paul, you should buy it. And Paul said, no, I, you know, I have two kids, and we really don't need a motorcycle. Anyway, came to night before graduation. And suddenly that BMW R60 slash 5 with the toaster tank was really, really inexpensive because he wanted that sports car. <laughs> Motivation. <laughs> he Paul, yeah, he made Paul a deal he couldn't turn down. And so he um, brought it home and gave it to me for Mother's Day. But, but what point was this that you got the BMW? Had you already had your motorcycle license at that point? Yes. Um, I had a, a Yamaha RD250. That was huge, a huge motorcycle to me. I thought it was huge. And when you calculating your million miles, that's not including the first bike. That's only starting once you that's started right. riding BMWs. That's right. I, yeah, that doesn't count that at all. The um, million miles started then with that R60 slash five that Paul bought me for Mother's Day. It's interesting because I thought you were going to tell me something about, you know, oh, you thought BMW was a quality motorcycle. It was the one that would take the million miles or, or some, something else like that. But to get it that way is sort of happenstance. Well, I had no idea I would ride a million miles. That was, well, you know, when I started thinking maybe it was possible, I was at a motorcycle rally in Canada and I had just gotten my 600,000 mile award from BMW. And somebody said to me, you know, if you move to Canada, that's a thousand, that's a million clicks. You know that, yeah. And that was, I already was at a million, but it wasn't a million, you know, million. So I came back to the U.S. with the idea in mind that I started doing the math and riding how I was riding, you know, like maybe an average at that point of about 33,000 miles a year. That would be that by the time I was 65, I would be at a million miles. And so I really, you know, the last 400,000, I was really, that was my goal. I really did think I was going to do that at that point. You've managed a million miles accident-free. Yeah. I I won't tell you I haven't tipped over, you know, because... If oh, you're doing, you know, it. Ronnie, I was, I was really hoping you wouldn't bring that up because now I feel real silly <laughs> because I'm sure I've dropped my bike way more times than you and I don't have near your mileage on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I try not to, but you know, though, there are those times you just get, um, overbalanced and. What's your riding but, style like now? Um, Paul and I ride when we want to, and we don't have to, you know, like I did have to go to work. So that was sort of built in. I did. I was when I was working on my master's degree, I was um, the the college I was going to was 90 miles away. And so I rode 180 miles round trip. Then, I, you know, I was always going somewhere. And now um, we live in the big band of Texas. There's so many cool places to ride. We can do it almost every day. In the summertime, we leave the Big Bend of Texas and go up to New Mexico and British Columbia and and, uh, wherever the BMW National Rally is. And so we're still riding, but we don't have to, you know, like go to work. So that's really fun. What do you think is the key to safe riding? I mean, you've managed to do the million miles. 
without an accident. Um, clearly you're a safe rider because you've defied the odds, I guess you could say. What do you think the keys are to that? I think one huge thing is uh, keeping an envelope of space around you always, you know, as very much as you can. Even even uh, riding on an interstate through a city, you can find pockets that are empty. Paying attention, of course, and always understanding that no matter what happens, something could really take you out. So you have to be paying attention all the time. You're also a writer. You write about motorcycling. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I was. Um, I taught kids with special needs, and one of the things that I would do is help them to edit their writing. And when I was writing in school myself, I just remember red marks, you know, on how painful all that is. So I really didn't like writing until I took that trip all by myself to Canada. And when I came back, I was so passionate about what I had done that my writing just was something I could actually do easily. And I just had to get it on paper. I'm still not a fluent writer. So when I care about something, I I love writing about it. Do you have any big plans now? Is there a a big trip planned or an idea for someplace you want to go? Um, You know, this next summer we're going to uh, Salt Lake City because that's where our BMW National Rally is. I haven't missed one in 34 years, so I'm not likely to miss that one. And then there's a rally in Washington State I haven't been to for a very long time, and they've asked us to come back. There's a rally in the cusp, British Columbia, that I I just love. So we always go back there. There's one in Kansas that I used to always work at when it was our home rally. Um, and But the, the really nice thing is that other than those, Paul and I are really back to a place in our lives where we can just make it up as we go. We don't have to have a schedule. We don't have to, you know, uh, plan a lot ahead. So we don't even plan our days here all that much. What we end up doing is that we just say, today, let's just do this. No, I was thinking this. Okay, we'll do both of them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love the spontaneousness. That's where we were with our kids when we started the riding. We would ride and stop at a campground, look at the local brochures, decide what to see. And then the kids helped us with the planning of what we would do and what the routing was going to be and which roads to take. And we're back to that. And that is just an, an incredible freedom. When will you be at 2 million miles? Um, I'm going to be at 1.1 million by the end of this year. So I think that, you know, by the time I'm 95, <laughs> 95, you should be at two. So uh, how long will you ride? Until what age? Until I can't. Good answer. Um, actually, Paul and I have been married 50 years this year. Congratulations. And thank you. As part of our um, celebration, we renewed our vows in the middle of the river down um, the Rio Grande. But the reason I, I mentioned this is for our wedding anniversary presents to each other we're going to buy the new bmw g310 gs for each other 
You've mentioned several times here, Vani, that, you know, your, your maintenance is done by your, your husband, Paul. And, mm-hmm. and Paul's there now. We get to talk to him about the maintenance, don't yes. we? Yes, we do. Hang on and I'll get him. Okay. We're going to take a break for just a minute. We're going to be right back with Paul Glaves. He's going to tell us what it's like to maintain a couple of motorcycles over that many miles. And he's going to give us some tips. Stay with us. My name is Paul Glaze. Uh, I live uh, in the Texas Big Bend, not far from Big Bend National Park, and um, I'm retired. Used to be a city planner by trade and a motorcyclist by hobby. Paul, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, thank you. So, Paul, Vani has done the million miles. She tells us she's closing in on 1.1 million miles. You have done the maintenance for these 1.1 million miles. Yeah. And you're not a mechanic by trade. No, not by trade. Um, Started out when I was about eight years old, uh, building my own bicycle from spare parts and was a gearhead in high school and uh, a hobbyist. And, and Vonnie had mentioned that when you bought her a motorcycle for Mother's Day, I believe it was, that um, she, her, one of her things was she didn't want you to take it apart until afterwards. That was your sort of stepping into owning BMWs. Yeah, let me, uh, let, let me tell that story because it's really kind of funny. Uh, she rode it around that summer and it got to be fall. And um, I noticed that it needed a few things. It needed... Uh, had a oil seepage out of the crankshaft seal and the pushrod tube seals. And the steering head brings were a little notchy. So what I wound up with was the engine in the loop frame sitting on a wooden box with the front end off, everything from the transmission back off, the cylinders off the sides. And uh, that was scary to her. And after I got it all apart and got the parts and got them in, then I had to go buy a manual so I could put it back together. <laughs> because when she told that story, she did say, and it ran afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was fine. As, as if that was as almost unexpected, you know. Well, when you saw just the engine block with the rod sticking out the side, um, Sitting on a wooden box in the middle of the garage, it, it could be a little intimidating if you didn't have a lot of confidence. Well, since you guys ride together, you've got to have roughly the same mileage as Vonnie. Uh, almost. I got about 850,000 miles. So in that time, you've maintained the two bikes. What sort of things have you learned that, it, that really work for making a bike run long distances? Sure. You do the routine maintenance that the manufacturer says you ought to do. You change oil at the frequency that that is specified. You always take care of the little things before they become big things. So if you see a little bit of oil seepage someplace, clean it up, then see if it comes back. If it does, deal with it when it's a little problem. And one of the things I taught Vonnie was to memorize her motorcycle. 
absolutely memorize your motorcycle, what it looks like. One day she came into the house and she said, I need you to come out here and look at something. I said, okay. And so I went out and she pointed. Now, that was on her R1100 RS. And the, the muffler comes back and a rod goes through a little hanger. And on the end of that rod that goes through the hanger, there's a little metal circlip. And she had noticed it didn't look right. Didn't know what was wrong, but it didn't look right. And that little metal circlip wasn't there. That's the degree to which she memorized her motorcycle. And that comes down to, like you're saying, to memorize, but to spend time with your bike, you know, be walking around, sure. checking it over, looking underneath it, doing right. all those things so that you may not even understand what you're looking at, but you, at least you can spot something when something goes wrong. Yeah. If you see a bolt backing out, that doesn't look right. If you see a little oil smear where it wasn't there before, that doesn't look right. And you deal with those things. If you always deal with the little things and do the maintenance for specs, you're probably not going to have big problems. Have you learned things not to do, things that you've tried, or maybe that a lot of people do, and you found that you just can't do that? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you one. Um, I really like to run a Molly additive in transmissions and final drives. And uh, I was in an auto parts store one time, or a motorcycle shop, I guess it was, and I found some Calgard brand engine oil with a Molly additive or Molly in the oil. And I thought, I'm going to try that in my K75. Well, the K75 oil checking system is a sight glass. There's no dipstick, it's a sight glass. And that Molly oil coated the sight glass on the inside to the point I couldn't tell where the oil level was. <laughs> It took me three oil changes to get washed out enough so that I could tell where the oil level was. So, so if you have a sight glass, don't do that. Um, other than that, there aren't a lot of don't do's except I work on bikes occasionally, not often, but occasionally where somebody brings their bike in because they want to do this or do that. And almost every fastener I encounter has been over tightened. That's the biggest tendency of people is to is to think uh, if tight's good, a little tighter's better, and it's not. Yeah. Well, what do you guys have set up for your bikes? Wise, like, have you changed your setup? You know, for Vonnie in particular, um, have you changed her bike to fit her in any particular way? Um, no, not really. Now, let me talk about her R11 RS. Most long distance riders have a custom seat. She's got a butt that just fits the R11 RS seat wonderfully that's a seat by the way that is uh, vertically adjustable into three positions within 15 seconds the handlebars on that bike are adjustable forward and back and then the angle it's a three-piece bar set up with a bar on one side and a bar on the other and the centerpiece so the outer ends of the bars you can rotate angular wise and then the whole thing can slide forward and back. So you get the handlebars set up in the seat and the bike fits. And on a long day, you can change the height of the seat by, oh, say, three-eighths of an inch up or down from the middle position. And that changes everything. 
angle of your hips, your knees, your shoulders, your elbows, and your back. Everything changes if you move the seat a half inch. So I'll throw a sheepskin on, a good fluffy sheepskin will raise you a little bit. And that again changes every angle of the joints. So what I do is I'll start out without the sheepskin. As the day goes on, I'll throw the sheepskin on. And maybe at a gas stop, I'll take it off. And every time I do that, I, I change my riding position very subtly. Well, Paul, great information. Thank you very much. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you. That was Paul Glaves from Big Bend, Texas. And before that, of course, that was Vonnie Glaves from Big Bend, Texas. And they're still out there riding and still collecting the miles. Well, on last week's show, we talked pretty in-depth about foot pegs. And it was interesting, some of the feedback that I heard was that some listeners didn't realize there was so much into foot pegs, like as far as the building and producing of foot pegs. Let's face it, the foot pegs, your seat, and your handlebars, those are your three connection points to the bike. So you don't want to go cheap especially on foot pegs because you're standing on them a lot of the times. So you don't want to get the cheapest foot pegs you can find on eBay or something like that just to save a few dollars when they're so important for the stability and control while you're riding. And of course, when you're standing on the pegs, they're your control tabs. They're what you're using to steer the bike and a lot more and maintain traction the whole bit. IMS gives a lifetime guarantee on all their foot pegs. And IMS already has a, a proven track record both on and off the track since I think 1976. And of course, the only way you can stay in business that long is by producing quality product and service. A lifetime guarantee. So I think that's bold in itself. But um, the co-owner, Scott Wright of IMS, he says that they can offer the guarantee because of their R&D they put into the pegs to begin with. And if you'd listened to last week's show, you'd hear everything that goes into them. It's just incredible. And as well, all IMS pegs are cast certified 17-4 stainless steel. They use a certified heat treating process. And they're built in the USA. So visit them at www.imsproducts.com. And when you do, be sure to let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That's www.imsproducts.com. Welcome to part three of our three-part series, Custom Fitting Your Bike to Your Body Size with Grant Johnson. Now, for a bit of a recap, the first week, part one, Grant walked us through setting up our handlebars, brake and clutch levers, windshield position, etc. Then in part two, it was the rear brake and shift lever positioning where our feet fit onto the foot pegs and the foot pegs themselves and just how important they are. Now, if you missed either one of those episodes, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to them because there's a lot of great information in there. You can get them at the website or wherever you download podcasts. Now for part three of custom fitting your bike to your body size, we're going to talk about seats. When Grant and I originally talked about the doing this mini series and how we were going to break it up, we decided that for this one, part three, the one we're doing today on seats, we were going to use an excerpt from our other show, ARR Raw. The reason that we decided it is that on one of those episodes, Grant brought up this subject about seats and we had a really good in-depth conversation, you know, with all of us talking and everyone on the panel learned something from this conversation. So it was very good. So we felt that that discussion deals with all the information we wanted to do here today and it really sort of nailed it. So here's an excerpt from ARR Raw's December 2016 with myself, Grant Johnson, Graham Field, Sam Manicom, Brian Ricks, and Shirley Hardy Ricks. And you'll hear those voices as questions and comments arise from what Grant's saying about our motorcycle seats. 
Seats are a real problem. Most people I find complain about the seats. I mean, I do a ergonomics class at most of the events that I go to. And one of the things we talk about is seat comfort because that's part of getting the bike to fit and work for you. And everybody's different. So we find for, for especially for two up, seat comfort has to be really good or it's, it's a real, it can be a real problem. But one of the things that I'm particularly aware of, because many of you know that I went through prostate cancer a few years ago and learned a whole lot about that part of the world. And there's some important things that relate directly to motorcycling and bicycling for that matter is the perineal area. That's the part right underneath in the middle. The, the perineum is important because it contains blood vessels and nerves that supply the urinary tract and genitals with blood and, and very importantly, nerve signals. So if you injure those parts, you can have all kinds of bladder control problems, ED. We all know what ED is. Graham, you know what ED is? I'm glad you I asked don't him. know what ED is. I was going to say, I didn't want to tell you that I didn't know either, so I'm glad you pointed him. <laughs> I don't know either. Come on, okay. I don't know else is ED like is erectile dysfunction. Can we no. say that on the radio? I think so, yeah. Too okay. late, you've already said it. <laughs> yeah, too late, we said it. Okay, Moving so rapidly on. the important part is if you have too much pressure in that area, you can have all these issues. So a few published studies have suggested that motorcycling increases the risk of ED and urinary symptoms simply due to pressure on the perineal blood vessels and nerve. Okay, I didn't want to hear that. Wow. But, no, I didn't uh, want to hear now that I, either. I know about it. Okay, so... I don't know about you, but I, I've experienced numbness in a very important area with many seats. And I don't know about you, but my experience has been the sensation of feeling that everything is gone is very unpleasant. How many of you have had that? Just numb. Well, All your bits are there numb. Was, well, uh, there was, it's interesting to listen to what you're saying. When I was doing my cycling stuff and I was doing my long distance cycling and I, and I also found all forms – there is something to do with the bicycle seat and the way you sit and the pressure you exert because of the pedal pushing. That yeah, does something. I'd never heard of the term ED before, but there was something. I don't know if I'm going to talk about this. Seems like I'm going to talk about this. That Go totally ahead. took away my sex drive. I mean, completely and utterly. Like yes. I'd never thought so clearly in all my life because I was never distracted. And I was really worried. I thought maybe this is a phase I'm going through. Maybe this is a part of my life of, of, of past now. But it was, it was something to do with the pressure of the bicycle seat and the position and the pedaling and that. And once I got off the bike, luckily, it all came back again. So that might have something to do with what you're talking about. Ooh. It's interesting that you guys are talking about this because when I got back from the first trip in the States this year, I had my blood test done and um, instant prostate cancer scare. Ooh. So, um, and more blood tests happening. And um, every time I was on the bike for a significant period of time, the rate went shooting up. Yes. As soon as I was off the bike for a month, the rate went back down again. And one of the questions they asked me was, was I riding a bicycle? Well, no, but... I've been riding a motorcycle that corresponds with those times. Oh, that's interesting. We had never connected motorcycling with a rise in the count. Yeah, yeah they, they should know that. Though, Sam. Yeah, I did actually. And that was one of the reasons why um, I was sitting on a hardless seat rather than mm -hmm. my usual squishy, lovely sheepskin. 
Yep. Yeah. More pressure. Yeah. 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 That was an F800, was it, Dan? It was an F800, yeah, but it did have um, um, uh, a different saddle on it, which was way more comfortable than the bog standard. Um, mm. I don't know what BMW do, but um, they do not know how to make comfortable saddles. Or least ways, none of the BMWs I've ever ridden have had a comfortable saddle. Um, well, but um, there are aftermarket versions out there that um, are much yeah. better. But, you know, even this bike that I was riding didn't have, um, obviously did have a side effect that I wasn't aware it would do. Well, I've got two comments for you on that. One is your doctor should know, because my doctor knew here in Canada, um, mm. that motorcycle seats did have an effect on it. And if you're going for a prostate, um, a PSA test to get your prostate checked, you should not only not ride a motorcycle for a couple of days beforehand, you shouldn't have sex beforehand either. But I didn't know about um, the riding the bike. and yeah, the pressure I, I on the be, area. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. I should be um, yeah. passing that on because he obviously didn't know. But if that affects the test, does that tell you that it's doing long-term damage as well? Theoretically not. Because, for instance, having sex raises the PSA score. That's not long-term damage. There's no mm. issue. So I don't. I think it's just pressure, anything like that can elevate the PSA score, but pressure disregarding the PSA score has an effect on the prostate and it's very anecdotal and nobody's really sure exactly, but there is definitely pressure on the perineal blood vessels is not good, on the nerve area is not good, pressure on the prostate is not good. Basically, you're putting pressure on an area that was never designed to take pressure just simply because you're sitting on a bicycle or a motorcycle. Motorcycle's not as bad as bicycle, of course, but still So motorcycle good. manufacturers need to get their act together and start paying attention. Yes, and that was what actually yeah. was going to talk about. <laughs> um, there's one motorcycle seat manufacturer out there, Saddleman, has recognized it, and they're putting a groove down the center of the seat. Well, like bicycle which, seats. Uh, well, a, a recessed groove down the middle, like some bicycle seats have. Some yeah, of the some bicycle end. seats have that groove down the middle there, which is for the same yes. reason. Thank God. And finally, I mean, I've been putting grooves in seats for a number of years now. And the seats, we recently got a pair of foam bases for our seats. And I put a groove in it and widened them and did some of the other modifications to make it fit. And the difference to riding comfort was just amazing. Beforehand, I was riding 20, 30 minutes and I was unhappy. 45 minutes, and I was sitting side saddle. It was just like that bad. Um, now, with the seat modifi modifications, I'm getting two hours easily without even thinking about it, and I could keep riding for another couple of three hours without any issues at all. And Susan says the same thing on the seat I've done for her. Again, with the uh, perineal groove down the center, that makes a big, big difference. So her um, Susan's con thought about seats is, first off, the average motorcycle seat is designed on the pillion side is designed for a 10 year old boy, not an adult female. Have you ever noticed that the average motorcycle passenger seat is narrow at the back and wide at the front? Mm -hmm. Since when does that fit anybody's butt? It's pure style and there's no concession to comfort. But many years ago when I was a BMW dealer, I had, had uh, some visits from the factory guys. They were visiting our shop. One of the things I talked to them about was the crappy seats. And they said, after they had a little conversation amongst themselves, it was quite funny to watch. Um, he says, well, we want to keep the aftermarket strong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so they know the seats are bad and they expect them to be replaced. And it's important for them, for the manufacturers to have a strong aftermarket because that's part of the, the whole ecosystem of 
the motorcycle world is that there are, once you buy the bike, there's other things to buy and it's all connected and it all keeps everybody happy and it keeps the whole thing going around and around. It keeps money being going, spending. Uh, so yeah, seats aren't great. So I started with a foam base, tweaked hers, and now she's really happy. It's wider, especially at the back. I actually, just for fun, I measured the uh, stock BMW seat at the back to the seat she's riding on now. It's four inches wider. Um, but the, the point is that we want to get something that's comfortable that you can ride on and you can enjoy, and especially for the passenger. And also thinking about, hey, there's, there's medical issues here that we need to be aware of and look after people better. I think it's important to get that understanding out there and the more people that just rip their own seat cover off and put a groove down the middle, the better. I mean, it's not hard. That was an excerpt from ARR Raw, December 2016. You can hear the full episode of Raw and, of course, all the episodes by visiting our website, www.adventureriderradio.com or wherever you download podcasts. So that wraps it up. That was our three-part mini-series called Custom Fitting Your Bike to Your Body Size. I hope this information that you heard here on the show makes your ride safer, more efficient, and maybe eliminates unwanted stress on your butt. up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it once again want to thank you for well well over a million downloads it's just incredible stuff my name is jim martin now it's time to get out there and ride your bike no excuses now of course unless it's snow out there for you i know there's some people that are still suffering from the parked motorcycle syndrome you can have to look that one up the pms thing but anyway Hey, if you like what we're doing and you want to help us out, drop by the website www.adventureriderradio.com. Click on the donate button. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent out at you. And anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on our ARR Raw show. Um, all the donations help the show tremendously. It's built on a model of donations plus advertising to make it work. And we certainly appreciate it. And don't forget, all of our shows are available to download for free. Just drop by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com. We also have another show, ARR Raw. It's a separate link on the website. Go visit there. You'll have to subscribe separately for that one. That comes out once a month, roundtable discussions about adventure travel by motorcycle. See you next week. Hi, I'm Paul Glaze from the Texas Big Bend. You're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.